Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today. And thank you for taking the time to be with us. We're here to provide useful information and insight to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. Now, a key part of this process is getting to know as much as possible about potential subscribers, uh, subscribers, particularly the uh, consumer types, because they're very varied audience as they as these things go. Um, Allison Sarah, who's the chief marketing officer for the Americas for Alcatel Lucent, is our guest today, and uh, her company recently conducted some intense uh, research to get a better picture of how this increased connectivity. Uh, that we see around us is changing people and how they interact in line. Uh, Allison is also the co-author of Identity Shift, where identity meets technology in the networked uh, community age. So, Allison, one book author to another, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Craig. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Well, we are going to talk about some interesting stuff. I haven't had a chance to read the whole book but I have gone through some of it, and number one, congratulations on being an author because I know firsthand just how intense this process is, especially the last 10% that seems like it never wants to get completely finished. (laughs) That is so true. Thank you so much. You get Uh, it. Well, there you go. There you go. So let's talk about first, before we get to the book, this research because it sounds pretty um, intensive what what you folks have done. So what was the cause, what was the driver, and then what kind of stuff did you find out? Sure. So so let me start with what caused us to go explore the the question on the table. Um, A couple of years ago, Alcatel-Lucent, who, for those in your audience who don't know what we do, we build and deploy broadband networks across the globe for service providers of all types. And as part of our strategy, what we looked at a couple of years ago is what if you could use the intelligence in those networks, uh, much the same way that an Apple created an iPhone with, with intelligence capabilities, a platform, if you will, to be able to tap into that iPhone and giving developers the opportunity to create hundreds of thousands of applications, but keeping Apple in a value chain in that process. We thought, why couldn't you do the same thing with the network? The network knows a lot about us as end users and has many intelligent capabilities on its own. And so that that started a study about two years ago where we went across the entire ecosystem of end users and developers and advertisers and asked those various stakeholders what they would think about various um, application programming interfaces, APIs, network intelligence capabilities that reside in the network and whether or not there would be appetite and willingness to pay for those capabilities. What we quantified was a $100 billion market opportunity in the U.S. alone when networks are are leveraged as development platforms. And it doesn't mean that network providers go after and compete against the Apples or the Googles of the world. It simply means that they expose these capabilities, putting those capabilities on the shelf for developers to take part in as well. Um, And as part of that study, what we uncovered was when we asked end users Uh, with whom would they trust with sensitive information about themselves, things like their presence, their profile, their location, uh, which tend to spark privacy debates, certainly. We wanted to know whom did they trust. Did they trust more the service provider with whom they have a relationship, the application developer with also whom they have a relationship? And by a margin of three to one, those consumers in that study voted and said, we trust the service provider with that information about ourselves. And that led to the question, do service providers own that trust position because most have never attempted to monetize it in the past, or does occupying that trust position give them permission to monetize it and create new value chains around the consumer? And that started this next study, um, where we looked very in-depth at how identity is shaped uh, as consumers connect more and more of themselves to these networks every day. And uh, to your point, it was pretty extensive because to answer the question, we literally cohabitated with 30 households, respondents in 30 households. Our youngest subject was four years old. Our oldest subject was in her 60s. 
And we watch these consumers for hours at a time doing what they normally do in their average typical day, realizing that technology surrounds them in their day, and then asking them very probing questions. Why did you do certain things? Did you realize you were doing this instead of that? And trying to get at the psyche of the consumer and compare what he or she said was important versus what his or her behaviors actually reflected in the, in the household. And then we followed that up because that is an interesting body of work and it is really, a, you know, the basis for much of what you have in the book are direct quotes from these respondents who selflessly left into their lives. But we had to quantify it and couldn't just rely on 60 subjects and 30 homes. So what we then did is went to more than 5,000 consumers across the U.S., starting as young as teenagers and going all the way into retirees and, and middle-aged and beyond empty nesters to ask them a series of psychometric questions about how they identify psychologically, a behavioral panel of 87 questions to find out what they claim to do, and then finally an analysis that, that may use trade-off analysis to understand what are they willing to trade off in exchange for value from a service provider when considering things like their identity. So it, it was a labor of love. It was about a year in the making on that research, and the, and the end product here um, is Identity Shift that looks at the psychology of identity and intersects with how technology is helping to shape who we are and who we want to be in this new world we find ourselves in. Hmm, interesting. By the way, is this, um, oh, is this uh, research data, is there a report on this online anywhere, or is it just internal and represented in the book? It's it's primarily internal and represented in the book. Those interested in more of the research um, can visit theshiftonline.com, and that is where you can request to meet with us. And you know we can we can give you as much volume of data as you can possibly stomach, uh, because as you can imagine, there is no shortage of data through the study. And what we tried to do is call the most interesting pieces of trends that we were able to, to really look across all the data and put those those excerpts into identity shift. Interesting, interesting. So from a um, marketing person's perspective in general, and I'll get to the um, some of the particulars of my audience, but as a marketing person, uh, what did you find or, or did you find anything that was fascinating or surprising about the data that you uh, came up with. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think what we were most struck by, and, you know, inside baseball here, when we were pulling the study together, even internally, we would tell other employees we are doing an identity study. And employees would immediately say, oh, so you're doing a privacy and a security study. And we would we would be pretty dogged and say, no, we're doing an identity study. Because what you find is because of the public discourse on this topic, which tends to be pretty heated on, on a typical day, the immediate inclination is to go to the privacy and safety side of this equation of the debate. And certainly privacy and safety are important to consumers, depending on how they psychologically profile in the study. But what we found is that identity, just like we are, is far more complex. And what we modeled, you know, thanks in no small part to the, uh, you know, the respondents in the ethnography portion where we sat with the people in the homes and watching them and listening to them and watching them behave, is that, you know, there's actually multiple dimensions to identity. And while protection, what we call protection, meaning the privacy and security debate is part of it, there is also a, a preference part of this where, you know, some, some in our study actually psychologically align to being people who are the bargain shoppers. These are the people not like in the 80s when the shop till you drop generation kicked in and you saw the rise of the discount stores and the rise of the first time that consumer packaged goods spent more on promotions than they did on branding for that period of time. And those people still exist in the world. They are more than willing to give up information about themselves in exchange for value on the other side. And then there's another side of the population that is very presentation-focused. And these are people that are very image-conscious. 
we are quick to label people in a derogatory sense in this culture as narcissistic. And what readers may find in this book is that there is a little bit of narcissism in all of us. It's part of our self-preservation. And so not unlikely, you find a good segment of the population who really care about how their image is coming across, realizing that more and more of their image is left out of their own devices and in the hands of others who maybe have a, you know, a photo opportunity that may not be the most flattering of them or texting fingers that may be able to blog or opine an opinion about that person that may not be flattering. So you've got these three Ps, what we call the three Ps, the protection, the preference, and presentation. That was that was pretty illuminating in the study to see that it wasn't all about protection. And we saw a lot of inconsistencies here of what people said was important versus what we actually saw them do at the end of the day. Um, but on the other side, what was equally fascinating was seeing just how easy it is for people to deceive themselves. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether it's because they believe they have no influence over their environment and believe themselves to be powerless, a condition in psychology called learned helplessness, and we talk about this in the book, whether they believe that they are actually more powerful than they are, the exact opposite of that, and are actually delusional in their belief system and therefore take riskier behaviors online, exposing them to greater threats. We saw this in particular among parents who do things like, you know, put their computer in a shared place in the in the home where they can keep a watchful eye on Johnny or Susie, ignoring the fact that Johnny and Susie have a perennial computer on their hip 24-7 called the smartphone that can expose them to the web. And so these parents are quite comfortable in their delusion that they're doing everything they can do. Or whether you have another segment of the population that, that is very susceptible to media hype, whether that hype is more the norm or the exception, they buy in to whatever the noise of the day is. It is amazing to see how easy it is we are as human beings to rationalize the seemingly irrational behaviors we participate in. And that makes it a little trickier for service providers to navigate this space because service providers not only have to earn the trust of the end user, but they have to think about the, the gaps of the end user's own mind of where the end user could put themselves in harm's way and then ultimately potentially hold the service provider responsible for actions that were not its, its own doing at all. So let's try to bring this into then the context of some of the folks who uh, I deal with and people who listen to the show. I would say there are <clears throat> several types. You've got um, community, and by a community it could be a government, it could be a local co-op, uh, but community-based networks. So they are the provider, the service provider. Uh, you have <clears throat> small independent uh, telecom companies and ISPs that are the service providers. And, of course, you have the larger incumbents. I'm not sure very many of them listen to my show, but, you know, there, there could be a couple of those out there. But in the first two categories of service providers, what of the data that you have looked at uh, do you think is most interesting that they should be aware of? The The, the point that I would punctuate for your audience is that trust is the intangible currency in the in this new network community age that we find ourselves in. And let me explain what I mean by that, because a lot of people are out there beating the trust drum, and for good reason, but we wanted to look at this equation a bit differently. So the way that we went into the quantitative research across the 5,000 consumers, and your audience should know these consumers are not just from every kind of life stage, again, from teenagers all the way to empty nesters, but they are also representative of rural America, suburban, and urban areas. So we did not by any means just focus on one type of, of city-dwelling environment as an example. Um, and what we asked these respondents to do is on a scale of 1 to 10, evaluate a series of brands on how much they trusted that brand versus how much they distrusted that brand to keep their information secure. We did the same thing on attributes like how much, on a scale of 1 to 10, they loved or hated that brand. And, what, and then we asked those same respondents, now evaluate a service coming from this brand and tell me how much you would be willing to pay for this service through a series of trade-off analyses that we put them through. And what we measured in the quantitative data that resulted is that there is an over 60% correlation between how much I trust or, or, you know, basically distrust a brand and how much I am willing to pay 
for a service coming from that brand. Now, that may seem obvious, and your listeners would go, okay, I would expect that, and I would agree. What is less expecting in this study is that an attribute like how much I love or hate the brand has virtually no impact on how much I'm willing to pay for a serve coming from that brand. And we had some brands that were loved but weren't trusted, and as a result, they did not earn their fair share of the market opportunity in the assessment as others who perhaps had more trust even if at lower love scores. So that's good news for your audience because it takes a long time, you would think, or or sometimes love is difficult for somebody. It's kind of this amor feeling, and it's difficult for somebody to quantify why they get a good feeling from a brand. But trust, even though trust is acquired over time, is something that we can look at and say there are definite attributes we looked at in this study that correlate to lower trust, and there are attributes that correlate to higher trust. Those that are on the low trust end are companies that appear to collect too much information about their customers, that don't respect their customers' privacy, or is not upfront and honest about how it uses customer info. So there are very prescriptive things for your audience. If trust becomes the intangible currency that allows you to monetize new value chains around your customer, there are practical prescriptions that your audience can follow to ensure that trust is restored and fortified over time. And at the same time to the earlier study we did, service providers right now are in the pole position, and service providers all sizes are in this pole position because, again, that study crossed all kinds of demographics and rule boundaries um, to own that trust position. So now it's a matter of how to monetize it without disenfranchising the consumer at the end of the equation. So are you saying that service providers as a class are more trusted than, say, content providers? Yes, that's right. Then, then say, and I'll go, uh, I'll use the, you know, kind of the terminology that we've used internally here, an application developer or an over-the-top provider. Service providers have a stronger trust position than, than the other class, um, and at the same time, that trust position is something they've acquired over time. Um, what you will hear me say is that I don't believe that means that service providers need to be in a contentious relationship with those content developers or over-the-top providers and vice versa. I think what it speaks to is that each of these players brings something unique to the table that allows that responder to that consumer in the end of the day to get more value out of both sides. So if service providers can insert themselves into new value chains surrounding that customer and bringing in those over-the-top providers and content developers that clearly provide creative services that consumers do love, then that's a win-win. There's new value that's created around the consumer, new ecosystems that can be restored around the consumer, and the consumer gets the benefit of quick service uh, velocity and services tuned to personalized needs depending upon how that consumer sees those services. Whoa. So then it seems to speak to the one of the points is that um, as the driving force behind a community network that the community or whoever the project team is, again, it could be a public-private partnership, it could be a local telco or whatever, they should think carefully about who their partners are from the content side if they're expecting to drive subscriptions based on what it is that people are going to access when the network is up and running. Absolutely. And the good news for your audience is that those developers, again, I'm going to use a generic term for them because you could be developer of an application that's content on the gaming side, the video side, or anything in between, right, the social networking side. Those developers from that first body of work that I mentioned are very keen to use some of those network capabilities. Um, and the reason they're keen to do so is not because they don't find value in what Google and Apple have done so well. Quite the contrary. They see a lot of value in device-based and web-based application programming interfaces, those APIs, those functional ingredients. But where they see equal value are in network APIs that work across multiple devices that can let them basically develop once and reuse across the same network that happens to connect a set-top box, a gaming console, maybe a mobile device, uh, a PC or, or a laptop. 
those that that is something that's attractive to that developer community who their investment is time in that application and so if you can allow them to compress their time to market by allowing them to reach multiple multiple subscribers through multiple devices connected through the same network they're interested in that and on the flip side consumers are interested in new services that can basically benefit from that rich network intelligence uh, and where identity shift, again, picks up the debate is to say, okay, if you're talking about highly personalized services, how personalized can you go before you start to creep into that kind of unsafe zone, potentially, or that creepy zone, depending on, on the nomenclature of the end user, where they start to see that as a trust violation. And that's where we try to get into really the psychology of the debate to help service providers navigate those waters but still unlock those value chains. Okay. So in um, a, a recent um, conference presentation I did in Missouri, I spoke about the fact that marketing starts during the time that the network is being built, yeah. that you don't wait until it's launched. So would it be appropriate then to say that in this time between, you know, first shovel of dirt is moved and the first conduit laid to when the network launch launches, that those people driving these projects need to do a marketing effort to first and foremost create a sense of trust about those folks that are that are putting this network out there. I think that is very safe to say. And I think you are you know extremely insightful to suggest that marketing needs to be on the front end of this. Now of course I'm a marketer so I admit my bias in this <laughs> conversation <laughs> right now. I freely both. admit that. But I think what we're seeing even among customers are that more and more the marketers are the ones that are being turned to because oftentimes the business case comes down to how much top line are you going to generate or how much churn are you going to mitigate. And so often it's a marketing challenge to the question of how much new service dollars are we going to get from this or how much services can we protect by offering the, these new capabilities. And I think that the sooner you get marketing in the tent on those conversations, the more likely you are to come out with a winning proposition on the other end. And it is also why at Alcatel-Lucent, we do this kind of research. I mean, we, I, you know, let's be honest. I don't sell to end users. I don't sell to consumers in this case. But it behooves us to understand how consumers are thinking about this paradigm because we can then talk to the providers who are looking to build these next-generation networks and give them some insights on where they might be able to navigate to those new revenue streams successfully by understanding how end users are thinking about these problems and these opportunities today and in the next 18 months. Interesting, interesting. So what advice would you give for the kinds of marketing messages that should be presented during that, uh, what I'll call the pre-launch phase? I, You know, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a combination of the message around, and, and this is what's kind of interesting. Um, trust is something that people will not believe at the face value. In fact, we talk about this in the book. There's a high degree of skepticism there. I mean, you and I can talk about this as, you know, as buds here. When somebody says, trust me, do you not naturally your spider senses tingle and you go, why are you telling me to trust you? And right. it's no different with consumers. They go, if you're really telling me to trust you, I might have to look a bit more guardedly at what it is you are saying. So there's a fine line here. Trust is something that is shown over time and demonstrated. And it's demonstrated with things like conspicuous privacy policy statements putting the user in control at all times of those privacy settings. And it doesn't mean that every consumer is automatically going to default to never share anything about me. In fact, what you're going to find is an equal number of people, if that's the case, an equal number, based on our study, would freely share about, about themselves in exchange for valuable services and in exchange for being in control of how that information is used. So there, it's more about what you do in this race than it is about necessarily what you're messaging about. Clearly, your brand messages have to reinforce what you're already doing as a company. But in this case, it's about walking the talk. And it's about, over time, earning that trust by equipping your, your, provi your consumers with transparent, 
tools that allow them to navigate and allow them to basically earn their own trust, because like I said, we can deceive ourselves, um, as well as in your company policies, the way that you walk that talk and, and what it is you, you basically say that you stand for. Mm-hmm. Um. And I just want to say one more thing on that, Craig. Mm-hmm. You know, there are very successful models out there, you and I can think of a, at least a few, where opt-out is something that is, you know, acceptable. And so it's not to say that uh, opt-out is always bad. We can point to very successful companies that have built very viable, sustainable business models on an opt-out approach. The difference here for providers is that providers, by our study, are held in the consumer's mind to a different standard than those other, you know, content and developer and over-the-top providers that we've talked about. And that's good and bad. That means they have the trust position today, but that also means the consumer has an expectation of how that relationship will mature over time. And the consumer, in his or her mind, will judge those companies differently based upon that relationship. The bright lining for your audience is the consumer, while he or she may judge the company based on his or her relationship in the past, does not expect government intervention to do the same. In fact, consumers in our study overwhelmingly voted they expect equal government regulation on how privacy is treated, no matter if you are an over-the-top or a service provider. So they expect a level playing field from a regulation perspective, which is good news. The more sobering news is, make no mistake, the consumer is the final voter in this equation, and he or she will hold these service providers to a different expectation, even though we can clearly look at successful opt-out approaches that are very successful today and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do find it a little interesting, you know, we're talking about the opt-in and privacy and what kind of information uh, gets, you know, released by the user, whereas I often think of, you know, this becomes an issue when you get to a website, Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show was to talk about it from the, you know, from the builder uh, operator perspective because I don't know if those folks think about this when they're concerned with do I get this network built, and because you know some of them may just say all I'm doing is is putting in infrastructure to give right. people access and I don't have to worry about where they go once they get on. But that right. doesn't sound like a wise position. Well, what I would think it would be is the difference between saying, are you building a conduit or a pipe that gets the people to where they need to go, and after that, you don't care. That is certainly one approach, and if you are confident that you can be a sustainable, low-cost provider that can compete purely on a cost per bit, you know, I hate to say it in a derogatory sense, but the dumb pipe, but be the lowest dumb pipe you can be and sustain that with rich margins over time because you get the economies, that is certainly one approach. The approach that we have taken as a company and that we counsel more of our customers on is you're investing a lot in that pipe. So why not look at how many other ways that pipe could be monetized beyond just the simple billing relationship between you and that end user and realizing that there's a whole lot of other people in the ecosystem, including developers and including advertisers, that would love to have the information and the bits that are going across that that, that pipe that you're building How can you create new value chains around and centered around that end user? Uh, Back when I was doing this um, for, you know, a company back in the 90s when we were deploying DSL, it was all about owning the customer. And we talked about it. We talked about, look, we have to own the customer. We typically defined owning the customer back in that day around a billing relationship or around a portal that we were going to build because, you know, we were going to get the customer to us. That has so changed now. It's not about owning the customer anymore. And, in fact, a millennial will not be owned. A boomer is very competitive and won't be owned. And an Xer is too disenfranchised with the world around him and doesn't trust anybody. So he's not going to be owned. So what you have to think is differently about the equation. It's not about owning that customer anymore through just a billing relationship. It's about owning the trust position with that customer that allows you to monetize new value chains with other parties who would love to have access to him or her, but doing it in a responsible way where the customer gets more value and those ecosystem players get more value, and you put that service provider into a new value chain that has not yet been developed or created. So basically... um, <clears throat> owning the customer is so 90s. 
It is so 90s. Owning is like a killer app. Killer app is so 90s. We talked about it all the time. What's the next killer app? Well, gosh, if we had that answer, we would uh, we'd certainly be off to our next you know billion-dollar fortune. It's, it's about not finding the next killer app. It's about finding what makes the next killer app better. And if you've got these functional ingredients exposed in your network, whether it's presence, profile, location, or even the non-contextual sensitive like quality of service, storage, all these capabilities that are in this network you're designing and building, all of a sudden it doesn't matter that you don't have the answer to the next killer app. You shouldn't have to have that answer. Um, you just need to make sure your network is is leverageable by others who do have that answer or stumble upon it and want to get access to your functional ingredients to make that next killer app even better. So let me ask you this. Um, in the last couple of weeks, uh, a number of uh, entities, both on the on the network project team side and companies, are getting involved with contests, you know, uh, basically offering – uh, nice dollar rewards for uh, developers or anybody who comes up with good creative applications for networks. And right. Alcatel Lucent is one of those because you guys got involved with the Chattanooga Network right. and uh, is funding uh, one of their prizes. And so <clears throat> what should people be looking for? I mean, you, you've got the incentive part down. Right. Now, once you get that money out there, clearly somebody's going to take notice and start saying, okay, well, we've got an application. But what should people be judging those applications on once that, you know, they start rolling in? Right. That's such a good question. And here's here's kind of the beauty of the of the problem before us. It you know, it used to be that when a service provider had to envision and develop that next killer app, there was a kind of a uh, an inequality of resources, if you will, because let's face it, the larger service providers also had the benefit of larger IT staff that could go and contemplate that problem or go build much faster potentially than, say, a smaller provider would be able to do. And so smaller providers were often relegated to being, you know, a, quote, fast follower or being a me too and letting the large guys go and stumble and, and create it and then they would try to emulate the great news about this new paradigm we find ourselves in is that this is a democratization of the resources because now you've got a developer pool that you could look at as competitive, and certainly some providers may, and they may say those guys are just trying to use my pipes and they're not looking to pay me for it and the end user isn't paying me for it, and that's why I've got this bandwidth going through the roof and my, my revenue per user is staying flat. And not a good problem to have, Right. So some providers have historically looked at that and said, we just have to get better, and we have to come up with a killer app, and we need to outmaneuver these guys. I'm so relieved, and, and, and just it's refreshing to see that the mindset is changing, where service providers are going, that's cool. What we can now do is go to those millions of developers out there and allow them through these contests where we can define the bounty that we want on the table. We can define the time frame. I need an application within X number of weeks. So not unlike what you and I would do in a service provider where we would have an IT requirements document for a new service, mm -hmm. service providers are taking the same page. They're creating a requirements document as to what they would like the service to be or envision that it could be. And they put those requirements out, but instead of putting those requirements to an internal IT staff who's very stretched and is forced to do more with less, they're putting it out to a developer community in the millions and putting a bounty on it that they know they're not going to pay more for. So the, the dreaded um, problem of paying for something more than you expected scope creep doesn't come into the equation. And what I would say is it's a low-risk proposition for the service provider because now your development time is completely outsourced. If that, if that developer sees value in your capabilities, he or she will develop an application. Some of them will hit. Many of them will miss. The difference is those that miss is of no consequence to the service provider in that equation because he, th that service provider hasn't invested its own resources to make it a hit. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Those that hit all of a sudden create a new value chain where both the developer and the service provider benefit. So uh, one way to pick the hits, um, some service providers are looking and, and they know what their brand identity is and what kinds of new services they're looking to develop and are looking to partner in a very meaningful way with, de with developers. Others are letting the developer community vote. So you've got sites like Topcoder 
where not only can you put the bounty out to 300-plus thousand developers and counting every day, but the, the, the beauty is those developers will vote on, the, on those applications they think have the most appeal. So you get the benefit of both. The audience that develops it is also the audience that critiques it, and that gets pretty interesting because now you've got kind of a, a third-party neutral zone of contenders that are also the voters and creates interesting opportunities for service providers to look at services in brand-new ways. Very interesting. Now, how would you maybe break down the actions of building trust by segment? Right, so you talked about the, the, it's important that the providers walk the walk the talk. Right. So, are the actions they would do to prove trust to a millennial or teenager or whatever yeah. be different than those for uh, a boomer? Yes. Yes. And what we look at in the book. So, the short answer is yes. And it's beyond generational. Um, so to your point, there are differences between the generations that we saw. Uh, I will cover briefly kind of how these generations look at this, uh, the world around them. What's interesting about generations, why I love them as a marketer, is that they have a mortality. The reason we're so fascinated with generations is, you know, when I die, there's going to be other women, Hispanic, 30-something, who are married, that continue to go on forever, God willing, in this world. But when the last Xer dies, that generation ceases to exist. So there's something very emotionally attaching about a generation to someone where they, like, like us, have a mortality. Um, and what, what defines a generation are those cultural events that happen during our formative years, typically you know, middle school through college, that define and unite us culturally to things that, that kind of create our psyche. For the boomers, we call them the consummate idealists. Our, fir our first book, which is available on the shiftonline.com, um, talks about these generations. Um, you know, boomers are the consummate idealists, so they look at technology as reinvention. So the technology there is about not putting them out to pasture because they will never settle for that. It's about reinventing themselves. And we talk to boomers in our study who look at the technology as an opportunity to be something more than they otherwise could be, whether it's starting their own business or connecting with people they never would have connected with. These are the, you know, they, they reinvent themselves. The Xers, unfortunately, had a very unfortunate childhood. I can speak for myself and my generation. You know, the space shuttle explosion, the rise of AIDS, the rise of divorce, the latchkey kids, drugs. I mean, you name it. The Xers saw, you know, Cold War. They just saw a lot of unfortunate circumstances. So Xers are the ultimate survivalists. We get a bad rap sometimes, but Xers are all about how do I survive because they learned that they couldn't rely on government or folks or anything else to bail them out. So for Xers, technology is about adaptation. Xers are the least trustworthy group we talk to. And Xers are the first one to look at you sideways if you tell them, trust me, and they probably won't if you try to be that forthright about it. Um, and then you have millennials, and millennials are the future, right? And so what's fascinating about the millennials is that they grew up in a connected world, and the moments that find them are moments like Katrina and 9-11 and Virginia Tech, all horrible, horrible catastrophes. But what, what really unites the millennials is that after each of those disasters, 9-11 in particular, it was the best of what the country was in a very long time. They saw the, ideal, the idealisms of their boomer parents coming together, but they now have technology to unite them and to create a voice. So for the millennials, it's all about unification. It's about how does that technology unify them and give them a voice bigger than themselves. And so they look for socially responsible companies. Millennials are very socially conscious as a generation, and they expect you to be more than just offering a reliable service. They expect to know with integrity what are you doing to actually make mankind a better, a better race, so to speak, or this place a better place to live in. Um, so there are some differences there between the generations. The first shift covers the generations. Identity shift looks at the life stages, because beyond the generations that affect how I view this world, what are the defining moments that change me as I mature? So millennials, let's talk about them since they are the, the cat's meow these days. You know, millennials, the, the uh, oldest millennials are now in their 30s. A millennial in his or her 30s that is now in the workforce and having children is a very different millennial than the 21-year-old who may be in his sophomore or junior year of college, right? 
So there are defining moments of when I graduate college, my perspective changes. When I decide I need to find a mate, my perspective changes. When I decide I'm having kids, very different perspective. And so who I am is not only defined by the generation that is around me, and for some of us more to more of an extent or less of an extent on that uh, factor, but who I am is also defined by how I'm maturing and these defining moments psychologically impact me and how I now see technology and the providers offering it to me, what I expect of them fundamentally changes. Whoa. That's pretty intense. I, I could and talk I, about I, it all day, Craig. Don't get me started now. Okay, I'm a marketer I, 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 and I love it. Book. You wrote the book. <laughs> I know how it is. We who've written the book, we got a lot to say about that. We got a lot to say about it, so I can't help it. I get excited about it. But it's just cool stuff because what our providers are doing is cool stuff. You're not just offering the pipe to connect me to a site. You're offering me a conduit to allow me to potentially be something more than I otherwise thought I could be. We're clear in identity shift. Technology is not going to define who you are any more than your driver's license defines who you are, right? But what technology allows you to do is it empowers you to be who you thought you could be. And it also can disarm you on the negative side to luring you into potentially bad blind spots that you didn't know existed um, that if service providers are savvy and kind of know the dangers before you do, uh, without ever taking responsibility, and good news for your service providers, our service providers out there, this consumer doesn't expect you to take responsibility. Two-thirds of consumers agree that keeping themselves online is something they have to do. They don't expect the government or a service provider to do it for them. In fact, they won't trust that, that if you say that, they're going to look at you sideways because they know that there's no you know foolproof system out there. But the good news is, is that, you know, your service, our service providers have that opportunity to, to really allow these consumers to be empowered and to allow them with tools to illuminate some of these blind spots um, and allow these consumers to really define who they want to be using technology as a means to do so. Mm-hmm. So now are there um, different messages or different tactics to take based on income levels because you talked about you did you know you broke this down by rural and urban and everything in between and you've got the generational right. divide now what about income where does that play because a lot of the people who have um grants and are tasked to drive broadband adoption and some number of network projects are geared toward closing the digital divide right which means that you've got a you're going after a, a often low income demographic and you're also going after a demographic that, to a large extent, has shunned the network, the the internet. So, yeah. how do you, how does your what does your data show you about differences based on income, if it does? And then, you know, how would you then react to the, those differences? It's interesting because not in this particular study, but in the one preceding it, which was done a couple of years ago, we looked at income as well. Um, And we looked at rural markets versus urban and suburban as we did in this one. And what's fascinating is that in some cases, the lower income rural markets are actually more inclined to pay for some of these content services. Um, It's almost like, you know, entertainment can be somewhat counter-cyclical to a recession sometimes because people don't go out as much, and so they invest more in the home entertainment that tends to be a much better cost-effective alternative than going out as a night on the town. And you see that especially in some of the, you know, the lower-income households that really are avid consumers of content. And, And certainly there's been other studies to corroborate that over the years that, Lower-income households actually invest as much in things like video on demand and and cable services as, say, a higher-income household does precisely because they're looking at that entertainment inequality and putting their their limited eggs in that basket at home. So there's – um, it's it's really interesting. You don't see as much delta there, and, in fact, you see some advantage to the to – the, um, to the lower demographic um, income levels on things like content. Uh, where you do see some of the differences are in the age groups. Um, you know, I talk to providers all the time that are like, you know, those millennials, they will not pay for anything. And what I remind providers is millennials have grown up in an environment where content has been ubiquitous, has been on demand, and has been many times available at low to no charge. 
you, you know, I did not grow up in that. I'm an Xer, and content is valued for an Xer. We're a pop culture. Um, that's why we have I love the 80s, I love the 70s. Xers can't get enough of, like, their pop culture because that was what was important as the TV was proliferating, the household as disposable income went up. Millennials are quite the opposite. But what I remind these providers on is that doesn't mean they won't pay. They just won't pay for the services that, say, you and I would pay for, that we put a value on, things like content and content curation. What millennials will pay for are things in the image side of things because they've also grown up in a world where their identity has been intertwined with the Internet and online since basically birth. And so they're looking for practical tools to help them manage their image online. They tend to be more presentation-focused than, say, older demographics who tend to be more protection-focused or even preference-focused. So it's about understanding the psyche of the end user and how much disposable income he has. Certainly does play some factor here, but not to the extent you would think. We had millennials who said in the in the study, they said, uh, you know, we asked, would you ever pay for some of these services? And they said, eventually we will. And they said, you know, when I've got more money than I do time, then I'll pay for those services. Right now, I have more time than money. So I can go look for content in my copious spare time. But you ask that same millennial, would you pay for an image monitoring service or something that allowed you to really reflect the best of who you are to others around you? Absolutely. And, and the quantitative data corroborates that. Yes, they will. And so it's about understanding these life stages and what's important to the user becomes even more profound of a difference than, say, what my income is um, in that particular state. So are you saying that millennials of – uh, from a low-income group, grouping demographic, will respond similar to millennials of an upper-income demographic? It's it's interesting because um, millennials will always respond to things like advertising and the, because, again, that's something that they have just grown up with. So they are going to look for many of these services to be subsidized for them. And the good thing for a provider in that equation is that you have advertisers that are eager to get at millennials. So it's about shifting the paradigm of how we see these folks. Um, and rather than um, providers who have to say, how do I get that limited household dollar that that millennial or that low-income household has, the question really is, how can I augment subscription-based services, because we're all about that, right? Annuity-based services are great. But how do I augment those with other value chains, advertising and the like, that allow me to subsidize for that millennial who may not have as much money or maybe a low-income household, but still allow them to take advantage of the services and get that money from an advertiser who is very interested in intercepting his or her message to that particular demographic at that point in time? Mm -hmm. Now, does any of this, uh, you know, the, 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 the key points that you've been making – uh, does this change when we talk about using the Internet for, say, education and distance learning? Because we've pretty much had a discussion that is pertaining to subscriber as consumer. You know, what will they buy? Right. What will they respond to ad-wise right. and so forth? But what about if I'm targeting the network to uh, uh, middle-aged folks um, because one of my objectives of the network is to get more people back to work by retooling their skills? And right. the Internet offers a way to do that. But is the, 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 the adoption tactics and so forth, are they going to need to be different in some way than what I would use as a, an advertiser of a consumable product? What I would what I would say because you know certainly now we're looking at micro segmentation which I'm all about as a marketer but I also respect that many providers don't have the means to do that kind of precise micro segmentation and to follow up with the, the various tactics. So for for me, if I was talking to your audience here, I would say it's more about having a flexible infrastructure and flexible control policies and tools that are intuitive for the end user to to basically enact on his own. Uh, so they don't have to have a Ph.D. in how networks work, and they don't have to be like Sherlock Holmes looking for your buried privacy policy somewhere to find how that tool works, but truly simplistic tools and allow the subscriber to self-govern how he or she interacts with your service. Allow him or her to decide, I want to go on the radar now because it's really important to me that I get that discount on that service versus, you know what, I really don't want that right now. I'm going to go ahead and go off the grid, and I don't want to be shown to people who might be interested in giving me value because right now, for whatever reason, I'm more protection-centric. 
you know, it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Like I said, we are complex human beings. And while some of us may psychologically skew to being presentation or preference or protection oriented, we make countless decisions every day where we trade off. Am I presentation centric right now or am I protection centric? Am I pre, uh, preference centric or am I presentation centric? And so allowing these users to stay in control with intuitive tools uh, does two things. One, it instills that trust relationship over time because they're learning now how to adapt their needs to the service. And number two, it relieves the burden on the service provider from having to be so precisely micro-segmented, uh, knowing that that segment continues to evolve and change as they mature and reach these new life stages. It relieves that burden while allowing that end user to self-identify, if you will, raise his or her hand and say, now this is what's important to me in this moment in my life. Huh. Never would have um never would have quite thought about that one. <clears throat> so, um uh I've talked a lot about um the the partnership dance, you know, that it is critical uh particularly in the build out phase to be looking to partners who will drive subscribers on because it takes the burden the the front the the, the marketing financial burden off of the provider if they have certain partners who can help them drive subscriptions. Right. So what might be typical for say average size city, not a not a small town per se, but you know, maybe an average city of a hundred thousand or so, uh, you know, partially rural in some places and so forth. Um what kinds of partners would make sense that can facilitate the trust aspect that you talk about and and maybe be attuned to the different um generational issues. Um so here's here's what I would suggest. It depends on um the brand that the service provider is interested in in kind of restoring or in reinforcing. The, you know, the good news is uh, from the first study we did, we asked developers this question because this is an obvious question and I I respect your audience may have had this question. Look, I'm a small guy. I don't have gazillions of subscribers, right? So why would a developer want to partner with me? Why wouldn't I why wouldn't that developer just go immediately to the big guy in the pond that has a gazillion folks, right? Subscribers. Mm-hmm. And the the myth to that that argument or the flaw to it is that that assumes that the developer craves reach. And I heard that over and over again, developer craves reach, right? And I've worked at both a big tier one and at a, a smaller rural tier two. Um, and I, you know, I debunked it because I was like, that can't be. What a developer craves is discoverability. And you can think of platforms that have millions and millions of subscribers, but they also have hundreds of thousands of potential competing apps. And on that virtual shelf space, I'm competing with those hundreds of thousands of apps. So, yes, I have reach, but my discoverability is going to be one in X hundred thousand, Right. So about a third of our developers that we went to, and we went over to a 1,000 developers here, commercial developers, outright preferred a regional provider to work with. You can make hypotheses about that. One of the ones that I have is they probably have a pretty good fit for a very local community. And you're starting to see this more and more. I mean, you, you look at success factors like Groupon and Living Social, and it's all about these very local, community-driven opportunities for people to really converge the virtual world with the real world and get balance, harmony, and value out of both, yeah? So it depends on what kind of things that that service provider wants to basically reinforce through his or her brand. There are other service providers that may want to look at enterprise developers. You know, we haven't even talked about things like education, at the benefits of education, at the benefits of healthcare. In many cases, these rural markets are ill-equipped with healthcare facilities sometimes, and they don't necessarily get the best doctors or physicians. So these same networks, as you all know, are being used for remote medicine capabilities, for EICU capabilities that help optimize patient care while at the same time, you know, getting access to clinicians that otherwise would not be available in a geographic footprint. So there are, you know, there's a host of healthcare applications. One that, you know, I like to talk about for anybody who's thinking kind of out of the box here, there was an application that I saw at Mobile World Congress by a healthcare developer who is using capabilities in the network. And what this healthcare developer does is say that I am a diabetic. And by the way, in the next 20 years, six in 10 boomers will, will be managing multiple chronic diseases with diabetes affecting one in four of them. So this is, 
this is reality, right? If I'm one of those one in four in 20 years, I'm a diabetic, uh, then now, you know, I can let my service provider know, here's my health record and here's my dietary profile. Now, what's interesting, and this is an app that's already been developed, using the the technology that resides in the device or in the network, that um, that app knows when I maybe cross into a restaurant with my friends and can automatically push to me the dietary options on that menu before I can be seduced by opening it. Here are the options that fit your dietary profile. Um, so that's really out of the box. And some people may go, hey, that's really infringing on my privacy. That's my health record. I look at that and say, for those who are interested in that, opt into that, are in control of that, that's a way to change somebody's lifestyle. That's a, It's those little nudges over time that start to change behaviors in a meaningful way. That allows someone to stay in control of a, a potentially otherwise chronically debilitating disease. So these networks are really powerful in what they can offer up um, to developers, to advertisers, to end users, and we just have to get creative and out of the box as a community to really try to think of the next frontier of what we haven't even possibly envisioned yet. Interesting indeed. Wow. So um, <clears throat> before we see, we got about five minutes or so. Um, early on, you had mentioned that there were names. You know, that the people had certain brands they trusted and certain brands they didn't trust. Can you name names? Were there were there were the people identify some specific? Uh, I I. That is one I will punt on, Craig. That is something ah. that we um, we reserve for customers who request to meet with us on the shift online. For our customers, we do make that information available. Um, but I will tell you, we tested a variety of providers in the mix, everyone from the over-the-top brands to the big service providers to the regional service providers to cable companies. So there was quite a bit of brand testing in this particular um, research. And, again, for those that go to the shiftonline.com uh, and request to meet with us, uh, we obviously make that available to customers. And one thing I'm sensitive to is our competitors also listen to this, so I can't give them away everything now. we got to reserve right, right. some things for Alcatel-Lucent here. I thought I'd get a scoop. Never mind. Hey, I love that you asked, though. And uh, <laughs> I tell you, it is available, so I just can't release it here. That's, that's quite all right. That's quite all right. So let's talk about um, – seniors for a minute and we'll uh by the way the, the the traffic for the show today has been pretty much off the charts so i'm very pleased because obviously a lot of people are you know into getting more, more data which is a good thing now what about seniors because i often feel that seniors are a segment that people assume are never or rarely are going to get online now i know that a lot of people applying for stimulus money you know talked about them but in general um, you know how potent are they? Are they are they increasing in their their use of the online world and social networks and so forth? Absolutely. What's interesting is there are differences psychometrically between a senior and a college student. My gosh, let's hope so, right? So mm -hmm. seniors do tend to be more what we would call protection oriented in their behaviors. But that said, more than half of them spend time updating their social networking page to project the right image of themselves. So that's a presentation attribute. Mm -hmm. um, you know, n over two-thirds of them say they are very or somewhat comfortable sharing information online if it helps them find people or things that they're interested in. That jumps to over 80% who say they are now very or somewhat comfortable sharing information if they have control oversees it. You know, so this notion that seniors are curled up in a fetal position somewhere, unable to tap on a keyboard, is complete mythology. We okay. have an entire chapter that we call the midlife rebirth. You know, Western cultures like to disparage midlife as if you're, you know, you're over the hill, you're devoid of prospects, you're marching to a slow, conclusive, inevitable death, and you're done. And that is so not the case. And we talk about the fact that the midlife crisis itself is in many ways a myth, as proven through other studies, not through ours, mm -hmm. and that really midlife is an opportunity for rebirth. And these seniors and these midlifers are using the Internet in creative ways to allow them, again, to explore potential that they otherwise would not have the benefit of doing in a purely physical world. So let's stop the mythology that they're somehow, you know, like I said, curled up somewhere, unable to cope with all the technology around them. 
I met seniors in this ethnography that are hackers and talk about the fact that they enjoy going into their Android phone and hacking and developing new apps. So, you know, there's there's lots of surprises in the study that I think, you know, your audience would get some value from and maybe challenge some of the conventional wisdom that, that seems to to dominate some of the discourse today. Interesting. So this will be our last question. We've got about a minute and a half or so. How can the average network operator, uh, be the community or private sector, gather some of the kind of information that you did? Now, obviously, you did an extensive survey, but how can the average small provider gather enough information to really get understanding? You know, what's fascinating about that, I'll keep this one pithy, um, you know, the one thing that the uh, the operator has to, to its advantage here, and obviously you have to have the right tools in your network to diagnose, is the, the operator has data that even research can't give you. Uh, so I'm having to really come up with creative research practices to get at the differences between what people say versus what they do versus what they value. Operators are in a unique position in that they have that empirical data. The bits and bytes traversing these networks is overwhelming. And what you can do, even at an aggregate basis, so that you're not in, just, you know, encroaching on any privacy concerns, but just in a diagnostic way. You know, I remind the audience, we live in an age where Google and Twitter are predicting epidemics two weeks before the CD can. And they're doing it by just crawling the Google searches on flu symptoms, and they're crawling the tweets of, I'm not feeling well, I'm at the doctor's office today. And for, by a full two weeks, they can predict an epidemic looking at that big data than the CDC can two weeks later. That's staggering. That's the kind of power that operators have if you've got the right tools embedded in your network. Again, and it requires you to think proactively about how you might use this network in the future. That's the kind of stuff that I can't even do for you in research, and I would personally drool at that. I know as an operator on the other side, I loved having access to that because it gave me okay. real data. All right. Well, thank you very much, Allison. we got to go, but yeah. thanks a lot. Let's get you back on the show again soon. All right, Craig. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. It was such a pleasure. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.